Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four, who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I'm your host, Kristen Saxena. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about early influences on our child's development of food preferences. So we're going to be talking about what are the things that you can do as a parent to hopefully change the way that your kids eat in the future. Specifically, what can we do when they're babies or maybe even before then to help them become more adventurous, varied eaters as they grow? I'm very excited about today's conversation. We are joined by Allison Ventura. She is a professor at California Polytechnic State University, as well as a child feeding expert and uh, does a lot of research on prevention of childhood obesity. Okay, well, thank you for coming on the show, Allison. You're welcome. I'm excited to be here. So, Allison Ventura, you are an associate professor at California Polytechnic State University. You are mm-hmm. an expert in childhood nutrition and feeding, and most of your research has been surrounding childhood obesity prevention, correct? Right. And you are also mom to two kids, is that right? Yes, I have an eight and a 10-year-old. Fun. That's awesome. Well, I love talking to um, child feeding experts who are also parents themselves because I think it really, it kind of gives you a new perspective, especially I'm assuming you kind of started in the field and in your research maybe prior to having kids. And so I always think it's interesting. I feel from my perspective too, once you're kind of going through it yourself, it does definitely shift the way that you look at recommendations and sort of the practicality sometimes of what you're finding in your research. So I'm excited to hear from an expert mom. Thanks. Yeah. Well, and I'll say that I, you know, in in listening to your previous podcast, I definitely had that same um, feeling as you, as you know, I learned all these recommendations. It was like, well, why wouldn't anyone breastfeed or why wouldn't you do X, Y, and Z? And then I had my own kids and was like, oh yeah, I get it. Like, this is hard. It's hard to, you know, do what's theoretically what you want them to do and actually get them to do it. Right. So absolutely. I always say having kids was like the best and worst thing for my career. <laughs> because <laughs> Kids take away from the time you have to work, but you gladly give that time. But they also give you so much perspective on um, just the reality of making some of these best practices happen, right? I definitely thought so too. Even in being a pediatrician, I said, obviously, you go to medical school and you do residency and you get all this education. But truthfully, some of the greatest education just came from having children myself. And so I like to point that out to moms that you you really learn a lot just by living and going through it. So um, you kind of become an expert in your own, in your own right. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Well, so can you tell us along those lines, can you tell us a little bit more about your current work and research and what brought you to that field? Sure. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, broadly, we're interested in uh, early childhood nutrition and supporting families during those early feeding interactions. And uh, most broadly, it's in the interest of obesity prevention. But, you know, I, I think we're really just interested in understanding how eating behaviors and dietary patterns develop in the first years and, and how we can really help parents to understand their children understand um, what their children are trying to bring to feeding interactions and what they're trying to communicate uh, during breastfeeding, bottle feeding, introduction to solid foods, and and how to make those interactions smooth and enjoyable um, in a way that really helps the child learn healthy eating behaviors and and develop preferences for, um, you know, fruits and vegetables and all these foods that we know contribute to, to health. And, um, and really how to support parents in, in some of these aspects of feeding interactions that may be difficult, like um, their early breastfeeding struggles or getting their kids to eat healthy foods when they don't want to. So um, so a lot of what we think about is, is the, 
parent and child as a unit and, and what's going on in that interaction and, and how we can kind of better understand it to help parents uh, in those interactions to support their children. So um, I'd say that, you know, I got interested in this field um, just, I had a, a personal interest in nutrition and um, also in children. And so it seemed like a, a perfect pairing, right? Is kind of understanding um, how to support parents in, in this way. And um, I started my work in uh, later childhood. So in my um, dissertation research, we were working with school-aged children and thinking about you know, family interactions during mealtimes and how that developed their, their eating behaviors and risk for obesity. But uh, at the end of my, my dissertation, I realized, gosh, this is too late. <laughs> There's already so much in place by uh, even preschool that, um, you know, that, that could have been prevented. And so that really, I think, stoked my interest in moving earlier in the life course and really understanding, you know, what's going on prenatally, what's going on during infancy that um, we have. And these are the times when we know the parents have the most control and influence, right? That it's not that they don't later on, but there's just so much that can be done that really sets the stage for, for later childhood and adolescence and adulthood. So, so I think, yeah, and kind of seeing just how much was already happening, you know, at, at age five and thinking, wow, like, I, I really want to get in earlier and try to help parents earlier so that they can hopefully do as much as they can when they have a, a lot of um, potential and, and help children develop healthily from there. Yeah, I agree. I've always been drawn sort of to that upstream work, which mm -hmm. is why I think I've always had some of the greatest interest in, like you said, just those early childhood interactions and the way we're feeding our infants and small children. And actually, it was really just in doing some reading and research on that topic was how I came across your work. And you actually have quite a bit of work and publications in the in the field. And some of the most interesting uh, parts of your work that I read and that we were able to discuss previously was really um, talking about what are what are those influences, those early influences in life. So what influences our babies, our young children um, in terms of determining their food preferences then and mm -hmm. later in life. And I found a lot of that work very fascinating. And one thing in particular that I, I feel like I learned about, or I don't really remember when I learned about it specifically. I feel like I kind of knew it, but didn't really give it much thought was just this idea of the prenatal exposures and how that can determine food preferences. So can you talk mm -hmm. to us a little bit about how even before a baby's born, so even in gestation, what are the influences on that baby in terms of what will affect their food preferences later in life? Sure. Yeah. And I, I love this story too, because um, I think it's just fascinating how nature sets us up for success in many ways, right? Like right. it's kind of this story that we can see in many other domains of development too, where there are all of these things that are put into place in the womb that are aiming to help that baby transition from womb to world in a way that will support that baby's growth and development and survival. And so it's, it's pretty neat to kind of learn about this biology and kind of understand all these things that are already in place so that we can better understand to help us make our decisions as parents. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, so we know that the senses of taste and smell, those are our key senses, um, that support our eating behaviors and, and dietary preferences. Those develop pretty early in utero and in, in the first trimester, they're starting to develop. And, um, we have data to suggest that they are functionally, um, mature by the third trimester in, in some ways that they can actually, you know, sense by that time. And so, so that means that already as this little fetus is developing, it's starting to sense the, the womb and, and what's in the amniotic fluid. And so, um, that means that, you know, anything that's in the amniotic fluid is, is stimulating and uh, contributing to that fetus's learning about mm -hmm. different uh, tastes and smells. And, and um, what we also know is that anything that the mother ingests is 
brought into the amniotic fluid and basically flavoring the amniotic fluid in a way that the, the fetus can detect. So if the mom has a garlicky dinner, that means that, you know, in about an hour or, or less, that fetus is going to get garlicky amniotic, garlicky amniotic fluid. And, um, and we also know that that is a form of learning is happening mm-hmm. then that the, the fetus is learning, oh, we eat garlic yeah. <laughs> out in the real world. Um, this is something that my mom eats and maybe this is something that I should be eating too, right? So it's yeah. kind of this way of, of priming the infant to know the foods of the culture and yes. to know that these are the things that are going to be available to you when you get out into the world that you're going to want to eat because your mom's eating them. So that means that they're good and they're safe. Um, and so it's just this really interesting form of prenatal learning that's going on to teach, teach the baby what to like. And we know that this happens because research has shown that if we actually, you know, do an experiment where we give pregnant mothers carrot juice. This is my favorite because I always just imagined all these orange women with the, they were right. like drinking it's daily carrot, carrot juice, juice. And I was like, they probably were just <laughs> yeah. orange. Yeah, from just, <laughs> I'm sure they were, but in my head, these are these poor yeah. orange ladies participating in the study. But good luck. Yeah, I don't think they were drinking that much. I think lots a day, but um yeah. So if we, we know that if we, if we give mom something like carrot juice during their pregnancy, and then we, you know, wait six months after birth and we bring their babies into the lab and give them carrot flavored cereal versus plain cereal, they'll show a preference for that carrot flavored cereal compared mm-hmm. to moms who didn't have that carrot juice exposure. Um, and, you know, funny story related to this. So when I was uh, doing my postdoc, which is some training that you do after your PhD. I was working with um, Julie Manella, who is one of the researchers who did a lot of this work. She did that carrot Carrot juice juice experiment. (laughs) Um, And I, towards the end, I got pregnant with my first child. And so I was like, time to experiment on myself, right? Like how exciting to finally get to do this in my own life. And so my husband and I thought hard about like, what would be the, the perfect food? Like what's something that I don't already like, and I don't eat a lot of. And so, um, I, I decided radishes would be mm-hmm. a good thing. Cause I, I thought babies probably don't naturally like radishes very much. And I don't really like them very much. And so in uh, my third trimester, I ate a radish every day of, of my third trimester. And then I breastfed Noah and I kept eating radishes through breastfeeding. And when he was six months, we gave him some pureed radish and he loved it. He just gobbled it down, which was exciting to see. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was, yeah, cool to be able to kind of translate that, that research to my own life and really see it happen. So, um, so it was pretty neat. And, and, you know, part of what's going on is that we, we know that one of the most potent ways we can increase preferences in children is just through repeated exposure. Mm -hmm. Like it works better than adding sugar or fat or, um, social modeling, like just, just merely repeatedly exposing children to a food will get them to eat more of it and to show a greater preference for it. And, and so that's essentially what nature is doing early on, right. Is that through repeated exposure in the amniotic fluid. And then we know this also happens during breastfeeding that, the, the breast milk also contains the flavors of the mother's diet, that that baby is just getting all this exposure to, to these different flavors that are really promoting their preferences for it. Yeah, I love to think about it that way because when you think about it, it makes so much sense. But again, it just kind of gives you this awe of the way that nature works because you're exactly right. Like that, that baby's getting exposed to, we think of it as, you know, just what you eat in your home and your family and that particular mom. But if you really think about it, evolutionarily I mean it's the food that was available in your environment at the time so it was really important to your survival that you be able to prefer and eat the foods that were available in your environment and so I just love to think about how that all makes sense but it's just such an incredible process I mean I I was so in in awe of your story with the radish with your kid because I was just thinking too when I was pregnant with my first child I was uh in my second year of residency and I remember being morning sick and all I could eat was fruit snacks. I remember having Hello Kitty fruit snacks in the pocket of my lab coat walking around and sure enough, he loved fruit snacks. <laughs> I don't think that was the same experiment at all. <laughs> so well, I admire you know. your radishes. Mine was certainly not as scientific or beneficial. <laughs> uh, if it makes you feel better, I think 
I think kids will love fruit snacks no matter what you do. <laughs> so, you know, it, it works well with maybe these not so um, innately preferred foods, but it's important to know that, you know, the kids are going to love sugar no matter what, because that's another like biological tendency is that we are born with innate preferences for sweet uh, and also for savory. Um, right. And those are important biologically and, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, because it, it ensures that the baby is prefers breast milk. We know that breast milk is sweet yeah. and breast milk is also really high in glutamate, which is the free amino acid that gives us that savory taste. So, I mean, those, those preferences are going to be there no matter what. Right. Mm -hmm. And we also know that uh, we're born with um, an aversion to bitter and mm -hmm. that's protective because it makes sure that we will be wary around potential poisons that are out in the, the wild. We want to be careful around those and we want to learn which ones are safe versus which ones we should avoid. Um, and then sour is similar that we, we tend to not like that as much and need a little more exposure and learning around sour foods to understand which ones uh, are, are ones that we should eat. Um, and so, yeah, so, so it's just, I think important for parents to remember that like that, that strong preference for sweet is going to be there no matter what you shouldn't feel like you failed. No, it's, <laughs> it's normal. And it's, it's, of, it's also yeah. developmentally good for them. So I get it. I just had to laugh because I thought back to mine and I thought, well, gee, there wasn't a lot of radishes. It was a lot of fruit snacks, not maybe my best feeding moment, but when you're just trying not to throw up, you just do what you got to do, which is maybe really another takeaway for, especially I think you know, pregnant women and breastfeeding women. Um, you know, a lot of times those are some hard times in your life for a lot of women. And so uh, I would say my takeaway from this would just be to do your best to increase the variety in your diet as best you can, knowing that that's, that's a good first step for your child um, in terms of just exposing them. Again, being those exposure, exposures and learning experiences for them to a wide variety of foods, which really forms the basis of a good nutritious diet is just that element of variety. Yes. But if you definitely. need to sometimes just eat what you can because you're so busy and tired or feel like you're going to throw up, that's okay too. <laughs> For sure. Um, so then the last thing you brought up I thought actually was quite interesting and I really had not um, given it a lot of thought, but there was some research that talked about uh, how breast breastfed versus formula fed babies how i mean obviously their taste exposures are different but that those do actually play out then to uh, their preferences as infants and even older children whether they mm -hmm. were primarily breastfed or formula fed even down to what type of formula they were fed so kind of your conventional versus soy or like the hydrolyzed formulas which anybody as an adult who's ever tried that with their awful disgusting yeah um but can you talk a little bit about that because I found that fascinating yeah that's an interesting story too right and so so we we think of uh breastfeeding as a, a flavor bridge right mm -hmm. that that because it's similar to the amniotic fluid and that it's conveying the mom's diet to the baby it's this this biological communication that's going on um it's it's really bridging all that learning that happened prenatally with the eventual introduction of complementary foods and beverages. So, so breastfeeding is, you know, that's one of the many, many benefits is that we know that breastfed babies are getting this really varied flavor experience that's helping them further learn the foods of the culture and, and um, then accept those when they're introduced during complementary feeding. So that's fantastic. Um, but I mean, babies, babies are just primed to learn, right? Mm -hmm. They, they, as we uh, talked about prenatally. And then as soon as they're born, they're just like little sponges, like soaking up everything they can about the world around them. So that means that even if they're not breastfed, if, if they're receiving formula, they're still learning from those flavors uh, that are in the formula and they're still learning to prefer those flavors. And so research has shown that, you know, babies prefer the flavor profiles that are similar to the formula that they consumed. Uh, it's just that that's not necessarily aligned with the diet of the family and the culture because it's right. it's more monotone. It's a more you know consistent experience day after day. Uh, and and then as you mentioned, you know there are different types of formulas. We have the more conventional cow's milk based formulas, which have uh, 
a certain flavor profile. They're a little bit sweeter than say like the, the soy pro formula, which would be a little more bitter. And then these um, protein hydrolysate formulas, uh, part of what is going on in those formulas is that you have high levels of free amino acids and those give us a lot of different um, tastes and flavor profiles. And we've, we see that, well, what, one thing that's very interesting is that within the first four months, babies don't seem to be all that sensitive to uh, the, what we would consider the negative flavor mm-hmm. of uh, the, the, the distasteful flavor of protein hydrolysate. So they'll accept it just fine and, and learn to prefer it to yeah. other formulas. So, um, so if you have to introduce that formula, <laughs> it's best to do it before four months. That's a good point actually that I'd never really thought yeah. of, but um, you know, thinking about how it can be more difficult transition for an older baby, which are often the babies. I mean, a lot of older babies get transitioned to formula for whatever reason, you know, before the, their first birthday. So that's a good point that, I mean, besides just saying like, oh, it's different and they're getting used to it. it I mean, in terms of their, their taste, it actually biologically is more difficult for the older baby. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we don't know exactly why, you know, what, what's going on. Um, I suspect we, we do know that the first couple months seem to be this really sensitive window where, um, babies are just kind of really receptive to, to flavor learning. So maybe it's that, that they're mm-hmm. just, you know, really receptive to whatever is being offered to them and, um, and then learning to prefer it. But, but we also see that babies who, consume protein hydrolysate formulas. And and this is even in experimental work where these babies were randomized to feed that formula uh, throughout infancy. So it wasn't necessarily that they had some sort of feeding issue or allergies that led them to be on it, that those babies, not only do they prefer the taste of that formula during later childhood, but they also prefer foods that have similar flavor profiles. So they, um, prefer broccoli more Mm -hmm. than kids who didn't have protein hydrolysate formulas. So, I mean, that's a good thing, right? Right. Well, I think that's an interesting comment and I feel like not one that you hear much about. Um, obviously there's several benefits to breastfeeding, but I kind of sometimes like to highlight these things that it's not a black and white situation. And there's sort of these benefits that come with whatever choices and whatever lifestyle you end up Um, having. And so one thing I thought was interesting as I read this or what it brought to mind is that um, certainly the breast milk has like a sweeter flavor profile. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I thought it was interesting because, and I'm sure that there's just so many other factors that kind of change the outcomes, but one of sort of the um, selling points or, or one of the things that breastfeeding is often celebrated for is sort of obesity prevention. So I'm sure you know a lot about that. So I just thought it was interesting because with older child, older children, we often focus on, um, especially with first foods, there was like an old adage, you know, don't do all the sweet foods first or your child's just going to develop this preference for sweet foods. Um, but mm-hmm. theoretically, you could say the same thing about breastfeeding. Um, I mean, I don't think it really plays out that way, but I just thought it was interesting to say, you know, if you were just going to logically look at it, you'd think you'd end up with these children that want everything that they eat to be sweet. And then Mm -hmm. theoretically to extrapolate that, you would think, oh, well, this could be a risk factor for obesity, even though it doesn't really play out that way. It doesn't. Yeah. And there's actually no evidence to suggest that there's a benefit to introducing fruits before vegetables. Um, (laughs) And yeah, like I said before, the kids are going to like sweet no matter what you do. Yes. Well, and I think that that's good. I really wanted to talk to you again about first foods, because like I said, I think that's been something through the years that the recommendations have just changed so much in terms of things like that. Like I said, it used to be that people would say you shouldn't start fruits first for that very reason. Like they won't accept the vegetables because now they're so happy with the fruits. And like you said, the evidence would suggest that that isn't the case. But can you talk to us a little bit about what the evidence does suggest in terms of starting first foods and sort of the impact that those can have on food preferences as well? Yeah. So yeah, you know, uh, starting first foods is such a fun time. And so I think it's, it's good for parents to really view that that way, that this is like such a ripe opportunity to let your child explore and learn and uh, really 
just know new foods in a really supportive environment that, that gives them a lot of patience and time to, to not have pressure to eat too much, or, you know, to rely on these foods for their, their calories initially, that really during this transition to, to solid foods, young babies are still getting a lot of their nutrients from breast milk or formula. And so it really, it really should just be a low pressure time where you're exposing to your child to as many different foods as possible so that they can get this continued flavor learning in a warm and supportive environment. Um, and so, you know, beyond that, I think the main thing that, that parents should think about is number one, repeated exposure is still so important during this time. And so we want to make sure that we're just offering these different foods over and over and over again. So our babies have a chance to become familiar with the, the flavors and the textures in these foods and, and have the chance to learn to like them. Because that's really, that's just really the main thing is, is babies like what's familiar to them. Mm -hmm. They're stimulated by things that are novel, but they prefer things that are familiar. And so that's just should be our, our real goal is to make these healthy foods familiar to them. So they, they learn to prefer them. Uh, we also know that another way babies learn is through what's called associative conditioning where they have something that they prefer. And if that's paired with something new, then they like the new thing because they say, oh, okay, well this, this um, you know, cereals mixed with breast milk and I know breast milk, I know that's good. And so if this, this flavors of the cereals mixed with breast milk, it, it must be good too. Um, so that's another way that parents can kind of help ease this transition is, and that's often recommended, right? Is by adding the breast milk or formula to the cereal or the baby foods. Um, we could also do this with sweets and I, I wouldn't recommend adding sugar per se, but there's some research suggesting that if you blend fruit and vegetables uh, in, in a puree, maybe that the baby will like the vegetable flavor more because it's paired with sweet, which they automatically like. Um, and so, so those are, you know, some things that parents can some strategies that they can use to, to help their baby during this time to, to learn about new foods. But I think one thing that parents should also know is that babies are very expressive during this time, right? And uh, I think anyone who's given a baby a new food has kind of seen all these faces that babies make, right? And sometimes they look negative to us. Like sometimes babies just like scrunch up and they like really have these reactions to new foods. And, um, some parents may be deterred by that of like, oh, well, he doesn't like broccoli. <laughs> I gave it to him and he made this terrible face or he spit it out or um, whatever reaction he had. And, and research shows that those, you know, those faces happen, but they're not necessarily always linked to the amount that the babies consume. So sometimes it's just kind of a reaction to the stimuli, but not necessarily like an indication that they don't like the food. And we see that with repeated exposure, intake increases earlier than those, those faces go away. Oh. So, so sometimes they're just not always like as connected as parents may interpret. And so, so I think the main message is that parents just need to be patient and to know that like, if they just keep offering those foods, even if they, their, their baby isn't, you know, smiling and like leaning in, like they'll get there yeah. <laughs> just with repeated exposure, they'll eventually get to the place where they're, um, they're accepting it and preferring it, even if their faces aren't initially uh, suggesting that. So, so, you know, the main thing is just to, to be patient and keep trying really. I, I agree. I think that that's true when they're little and it holds true as they get older. But I, I think you're exactly right, especially in those kids that really aren't verbal. It's hard not to try to read sort of the facial cues. And I think it does. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly you want to be able to read your baby's cues in terms of when they're done. I'm not trying to yeah. force it because I think that that yeah. then it becomes sort of like a negative affiliation with the with yeah. the food that you're trying to feed them, even if it was something that they like. Now it's become something where, you know, I'm kind of being made to eat more than I want to or when I don't want to. And so I think that that's sort of that same association. Uh, when you yeah. talked about first foods, two things really came to mind. Um, I just always remember every time I think about early foods and first foods, um, I think it is important to keep in mind that um, you are setting the framework for the future. I always will remember 
uh, when I was in, in pediatrics practice and I had at our six months visit, we would always, you know, talk about have you started foods? Have you started solid foods? What are you eating? And I'll never forget we had this mom and she she's like, oh, yeah, she loves to eat so much. And I was like, okay, well, what kind of foods has she started? She's like, well, we've started a lot of foods, but her favorite are Twinkies and Dr. Pepper. And I just thought, I I don't even know where to start. Um, But I think it's just, and she was so proud and happy. And of course, she loved Dr. Pepper and Twinkies. I mean, they were soft and sweet. And um, of course. So I think, though, um, to keep in mind that you are setting that flavor profile for what you think that they'll be eating in the future. Um, But the other thing, like I said, I would say with my own kids, I probably didn't think as much about my own diet as laying that framework for when I was pregnant or breastfeeding. But definitely Mm -hmm. at the time of of starting foods, I think that's when it becomes very real. And for me, I thought one of the best things that we did was to just make our own baby food. And essentially Mm -hmm. out of the foods that we were eating for the most part. And I think as a family, it's kind of easy to think about how that does make sense and taking whatever you are eating and using the components of it to make something that you're going to feed your child. Because you know, if you think about it, it certainly lays the groundwork for that child then to appreciate and enjoy the meals that your family eats in the future. And really, I think that's something that sounds very overwhelming to parents, I think sometimes, but it isn't, it doesn't have to be as difficult as it sounds, I think. And so that's something I often suggest for people um, as really one of those, to me, it seems like a big ticket item in terms of helping your baby to enjoy and appreciate the foods that your family eats. Yeah, you, that's a great point. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes what we see is that parents have this disconnect, right? They mm-hmm. think that they need like special kids foods or that kids can't have spice or you know, yeah. there, there's some, for some reason, this perception that kids need special foods that are just for kids. Mm -hmm. And I think our, our society promotes this as well, right? Like if you go to the grocery store, there's this whole kids food section that's full of like sweet stuff with cartoon characters on Mm -hmm. it. And if you go to any restaurant, they have a kid's menu. That's often not the the cuisine of the restaurant, right? That I've gone to so many Mexican restaurants where the kid's menu has a burgers, chicken fingers, and pizza. And it's like, it's a Mexican restaurant. Like, (laughs) okay for kids to eat smaller portions of Mexican food. Um, So so that's such an important point that like, you want this continuity. There's no reason why your kids can't eat what you're eating just Mm -hmm. in a smaller portion or, you know, maybe for a young baby, a a pureed form, if that's how you'd like to introduce um, complementary foods to them. And, and that will just ease the transition because it means that all the, you know, you're not suddenly have a six-year-old who won't eat anything, but uh, chicken figures, but that they're primed and, you know, expect that at dinner, we all eat the same foods and I like spice and I like whatever it is that I'm being offered because that's what I've always been offered. And so it's, it's an important message for sure. Um, And I think, like you said, it maybe can sound overwhelming, but if we can help parents understand the tricks and tips and, you know, ways that maybe they can lean on frozen foods where they can make smaller portions and, and, uh, and keep them for longer. All these ways that we, maybe we can mitigate food waste. If it, if we're offering foods and kids are just eating a bite and then they don't want any more, that's okay. Let's just make sure that we're, you know, have strategies to, to mitigate our concerns around, uh, them not eating as much as we want or expect. (laughs) Cause I, I agree with you. We don't want them to force, force them to eat beyond, you know, their hunger and satiation levels, uh, that's just going to set up, um, some eating patterns that are problematic later on. And I thought you brought up a good point too, just about this idea of sort of kid food is really sort of a modern day social mm-hmm. construct, I guess. I mean, it's something yeah. that we've made up, like, like there was no kid menu a hundred years ago, right? You just ate what Whatever everybody there. ate. So <laughs> yeah. um, I think that even that, just keeping that in mind, that this is not really the way that we were designed to eat as a family mm-hmm. can just serve as yeah. a reminder to say like, exactly like you said, even things like, yes, I mean, 
children in Mexico eat Mexican food all the time. Children in Japan eat Japanese food all the time. So there's no reason that you should think that your young child shouldn't be fully capable of enjoying the whole wide range of foods. The other thing when you mentioned Mexican food that came to mind for me was uh, the genetics and what how that plays into food preferences only because I know cilantro is one that people know a lot about in terms of, and I can't remember the name of the gene, but I know that there are some people who I believe have a gene or I'm going to be at a loss for all the details around it, but I know it's genetically linked in terms of a group of people who do not enjoy cilantro. It kind of has some sort of soapy, bitter taste. And I think that there's other genetics as well. I think that we know of, I'm sure there's tons that we're still unawares of, but can you talk to us a little bit about the research surrounding genetics and um, flavor preferences? Because I love to talk, especially with kids, I think there's so much question, nature versus nurture. And so I always find those pieces interesting. Yeah. And I think the um, gene that we know the most about, um, or one of the most studied in terms of flavor preferences, taste and flavor preferences would be the um, task to our task to our 28, I think it is now. But there is a gene that's involved in bitter taste perception. Mm-hmm. And we know that uh, some individuals are because of their specific, you know, genetic uh, alleles on this this gene, they are just much more sensitive to bitter taste. That it's that's much more averse to them, um, and others are not as sensitive. And so it's yeah, you. It's, I'm glad that you brought this up because it is important for parents to realize that there there may be some genetic differences in their children that they are just biologically more sensitive to bitter it's it's hard harder for their child to you know learn to like bitter taste because of their their specific specific genetic makeup um there's also emerging research on temperament too right as it relates to food preferences i mean we know a lot about infant temperament and how infants have different um ways of interacting with the world and different sensitivities and uh, for some infants, they're just much more sensitive. They just need a lot more support to, to calm down and be soothed. Um, and there's there's emerging research suggesting that these infants who have these greater levels of negative affectivity and, and kind of more sensitivity, they, they may need more exposures to a new food to learn to like it. They, they may be, um, you know, have less willingness to approach novel things, foods included. And so it is really important for parents to understand these, you know, individual differences. And this may explain why one sibling will try everything, eat everything and has a hearty appetite. And another sibling is, is, you know, a lot more worry around new foods and a lot more picky. Um, it's not a fault of either child. It's just differences in who that, that child is, you know, who they are, um, and means that parents need to be more patient and sensitive and maybe try different strategies to support that child to, to learn to like foods in the way that matches their specific genetics and, you know, their sensitivities and, um, willingness to approach new things. Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody that has more than one child, I think that that becomes, I just, again, it brings up always that nature versus nurture because you start to feel like I did so much similar things with the two, three (laughs) of you, whatever. And yet you, like you said, you can have one child that like happily accepts every, you know, piece of broccoli that you put in front of them. And then you have this other child that you feel like doesn't want to try anything. And so I think it's exactly right. It can be frustrating for parents, but just realizing that there can actually be, you know, there, there may be just something inside this child's genetics that makes this one this way mm-hmm. and that one that way. And you can work with both of them and still do the things, expose them both to lots of variety of food. Know that you might just, it might take several more exposures for this child and that's just their nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then the other thing that you talked about, again, as we kind of talk about things that are just sort of innate, is um, this idea that children are sort of biologically wired to crave um, high energy foods and essentially sweet foods and usually higher fat foods. And I think Mm -hmm. it makes sense. And we all know that like 
you know, everybody's like, oh, kids love candy and cupcakes and whatever. But I also think it's something that can be kind of alarming to parents Mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, with a lot of the messaging and it's difficult to navigate a lot of the recommendations and nutrition information that's out there. And so I think, like I said, it can be very concerning to parents when they see their child really liking candy and cookies and things like that. So can you talk to us a little bit just about that and how that is very biologically normal? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, again, it kind of comes back to this, um, priming the fetus for that tradition, that, that transition from womb to world, that it's, it's protective for that young infant to really prefer foods that are high in calories. Um, and, you know, if we think about the foods that are naturally occurring in nature that, that we were exposed to in our more traditional environments, um, those are often foods that are high in sugar, like mm-hmm. fruits are a great source of calories or high in fat. And so, so it, will, it is adaptive to be very, um, attuned to those foods to prefer those foods. And, and we have, you know, reward systems in our brain that, mm-hmm. uh, get stimulated when we eat those foods. So there is a really strong biological pull to be attracted to those foods early on to ensure that we're eating the right things, eating enough, getting enough calories. Um, and we see actually there's research showing that, that these preferences for sweet in particular are heightened at times of rapid growth. So if if we actually look at biological markers of of growth, those children who are growing more quickly because they're in a spurt, have an even more heightened, you know, preference. So, so it's interesting, right. To think about it in that way, this is like kind of a biological drive that they have to make sure that they're getting enough of calories. Uh, It's just that I think part of the problem in our current food environment is that the system has really been hijacked, right? That food producers know that we are really attracted to sweet and fat foods. And so they've created these foods that are sweetness on uh, hyperdrive essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that they're hyper palatable, they really um, stimulate those reward systems and and kind of uh, make things go a little awry when, when we, because they're always available and, mm-hmm. and cheap. And um, so it's easy to now eat too much of those foods in, in our current food environment. Um, and, you know, I think what we also see too, is that we see these preferences all throughout childhood, but sometimes the, the problems associated with uh, our food preferences get heightened it, when children hit about two yeah. <laughs> and they get in this neophobic phase where all of a sudden, you know, they, they used to be these sweet little babies who were willing to try everything and were pretty, you know, accepting of, of new foods. And then all of a sudden something kind of switches developmentally mm-hmm. and they become more picky and, and more, uh, likely to maybe refuse new foods or refuse foods that they used to accept and now don't. And this is another thing that's, it's developmentally normal. Like, and it's, if we think about from the perspective of the biological priming, you know, when, when a child turns one to two years of age, they're, they're walking around more, they're gaining more independence. So again, it's, it's adaptive for that child to become more wary of, of new foods or foods that they don't know because they don't always have their mom right by their, their side to tell right. them eat this, don't eat that. And so, so, I mean, I think that's another thing for parents to remember is that it's completely normal for their child's eating behaviors to change when they um, reach, you know, one to two years of age. Uh, and part of what parents need to do is just be patient right. and write it out, consistent, keep offering the healthy foods of the family um, and know that even if their child's not eating a lot of it now, that consistency and patience will pay off in the long run. And, uh, and you know, I, I think another thing parents can do during these times, if they're really concerned about these high preferences for sweet or their, their child's, you know, increasing pickiness is they, you know, they, they still have a lot of control over many of the child's foods environments. And so, we can be somewhat covert in the way that we shape our child's uh, eating behaviors because 
research shows us we we don't necessarily want to be overtly restrictive you know like yeah. you said we don't want to be pushing them to clean their plate or eat beyond their fullness level because that's going to mess up their abilities to regulate their own intake we know we know kids can eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full and we want to preserve that so yep. that they'll turn into adults who eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full and not overeat just because food is available and we also know that if we're super restrictive over sweet foods, so, you know, if we have cookies in the house, but they're never allowed to eat them, or they can only have one on Sunday, that that's problematic too, because the child learns this is a forbidden fruit that I'm not allowed to have if my parents are around, but we actually have, you know, experimental data to show if those kids who are highly restricted at home, if they're put in a situation where their parents not there, but there's you know, sugary foods available, they'll eat a lot of those foods yeah. um, and a lot more kids who aren't restricted. And so, so really we don't want to be using these kind of overt strategies to tell kids eat more, don't eat that, mm -hmm. but, but rather what's, what we consider to be more desirable is to rather, you know, take control of the environments that you can take control over. Right. So fill up your pantry with um, th these healthier, you know, fruits and vegetables and whole grains, and just make that kind of the culture in your household is that these are the things we eat, but we also have treats every now and then, or when we go to a birthday party, it's okay to indulge a little bit, or, yeah. you know, that, that there's no problem with eating those, those higher sugar, higher fat foods on occasion and really enjoying them. But what we have in our day-to-day, -day, you know, meals are, are these healthier foods that are supporting, you know, our, our health and help us feel good. Yes. Um, so it's, yeah, we can be tactful with it. And it, I think it takes some effort, but it also, um, helps to relax a little bit and just know, like, <laughs> you know, you can't control every food environment. You can't control every meal and you don't need to. Yeah. And in fact, you, you shouldn't try to, because exactly. it can be counterproductive. Exactly. And we want children to learn, like, you know, I, I ate too much of that and that felt uncomfortable. That's mm -hmm. an important lesson. Uh, and, and, you know, by working through that with them too, of like, Oh, that didn't feel good to eat five cookies. Did it? <laughs> you know, how many do you think you should eat next time? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, those are all learning opportunities and not uh, reasons to restrict or, you know, get super worried about that one setting. Well, and I thought you brought up a really good point because I think a lot of things, but as an as adults, a lot of times the messaging, kind of the diet culture we see as adults, we kind of a lot of times become sort of sugar, fat phobic, um, yeah. thinking that that's very detrimental to our health. And so I think when we kind of play that reel in our heads, it's very easy to also apply that to our thinking as we're feeding our children. But it's yeah. also important to realize that, I mean, for anyone, those things are essential parts of a diet, a healthy diet. But for children in particular, these are essential components for their growth and development. And so not only is there very real innate reasons why their body is craving them, but there's very real reasons why they should get them. But I thought another point that you brought up is I think the thing that makes it more tricky now is sort of the way that our current food system, like you said, had hijacked the situation. Mm -hmm. So, um, cause I know for me, especially like even now, so my oldest child is 13. And so then you get, you don't have as much control and 13 is also a very high, uh, growth time for a lot of kids. And so you start to see, you know, kind of, you kind of get this little break, I would say a little bit through those school age years where things kind of stay the same for the most part. Um, you know, six, eight, nine years old, but then sort of those same anxieties that you felt sort of when they were toddlers start to come back, except for you realize that you have far less control over the situation. Um, and so I think for one, that, that's a ploy to put in the groundwork when they're young, because mm -hmm. um, definitely you're probably going to have a better chance of them making healthier choices, having a wider food preference if you've created those exposures when they're young, but also realizing the mindset that when you start to see that preteen or early teenage child, again, start to crave, you know, sugars and fats and things like that. To me, what I've been able to lean on is um, just the idea to present as much unprocessed food as you can, as just sort of like a general way of approaching it. Because I think there, at least you've got you're heightening their ability to listen to their body's cues to take in what they need 
as much, you know, calories and sugars and fats and vitamins and minerals as they need to allow them to listen to their bodies without feeling like you have to intervene. Um, Mm -hmm. But allowing it to be a lot more natural process where you don't feel it's like the food. I always think of a lot of processed food. It kind of tricks your body. It's thinking it's getting all these things it needs, but those things aren't always really in there, basically. So, um, I mean, I think that for a lot of parents, I think that at least when you get to those points where you feel like your own anxieties are maybe entering and and you need something to lean on. For me, that's what I try to lean on with the obviously, like you said, you know, even more so. I think all these things get magnified where you realize they start to go places on their own and they're going to be exposed to even more food without you. So not to be restrictive or controlling, but to right. give the best opportunities you can when you have them to yeah. to get that in natural ways where it will actually like do the things it's supposed to be doing for them. <laughs> well, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of one of the last things I wanted to talk about, you had mentioned this before, was um, the importance of parent modeling in eating behaviors. Mm-hmm. And can you talk to us yeah. just a little bit about any research that you've done in that realm? Yeah, definitely. We know that um, parents are really anyone, uh, <laughs> peers, older older children, uh, teachers, can be role models to, to children for their eating behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of, um, creative experiments that have been done to where children eat, you know, a weird blue food either alone or in the presence of an adult who's either just sitting there or also eating that weird blue food. And we find that children will try that food and eat more of it. If there's an adult there beside them eating that food. Um, and we see this, you know, in classroom context and, um, we see variations if, if the child, if the, the parent or teacher is talking enthusiastically about that food that that augments. So we know that social modeling is a really potent influence on children's eating behaviors and in particular, their willingness to try new foods. Uh, so this, I think really supports that idea of the family eating the mm-hmm. same foods together, right? That in some families, for whatever reasons, you know, logistics, parents work schedules, they may make a separate meal earlier for the kids. And then the parents eat later when the kids are asleep, um, or, you know, they're making separate kids foods for the kids and then a separate adult meal for the adults. And then everyone's eating together. You know, these, these sorts of setups don't support that social modeling that we know is really important. And so because, because kids are watching their parents, they're watching what they eat, they're, they're watching what they like. Uh, this, this is really a good argument for the whole family to eat together whenever possible and eat the same foods whenever possible so that the kids get that social modeling. Um, and again, it, you know, it comes back to the, our, our biology that um, if you're a young little cave baby in, in the wild foraging <laughs> alongside your mother you're watching to see what your mom eats and and what you know does or does not make her sick what she likes because that's an important thing for you to learn of like okay mom ate that and it was safe for her so you know I can I can eat that too um so yeah so that may be hard for some families mm-hmm. because their parents really like to eat the way that they're eating but they want their children to be better I think that's that's every parent's dream is that your child will be better than you, right? right. And not have your vices and your, your bad habits. But, um, but it is a good reason for parents to make sure that they are making those changes that maybe they want to be changing to their, their diet and, and making sure that their children see that them eating healthy foods and enjoying healthy foods. And, and we know that that's just going to augment all these other things that we talked about around repeated exposure and um, being patient and creating a warm feeding environment with, with healthy foods for the family. Yep. They're always watching. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Allison. So we have, we have one more segment to our podcast and it's something we call ask me anything. So I have a couple of questions. Um, the first one is from Sean, if you had one piece of advice for parents of young kids in terms of the most effective measure they could take to help their kids be healthy eaters, what would it be? I think my one piece of advice is 
to just be patient and understanding. <laughs> um, you know, as, as we talked about, just repeatedly exposing your kids to new foods is the best way to make them learn to prefer those foods. And that can be really hard, especially if you're worried about resources, if you're worried about food waste, if, if um, it feels frustrating to make these beautiful meals for your family that they don't try or just take a bite, um, that even though it's, yeah, it's maybe not the most sexy advice. It's, it, it's what we know from research and works that if we can just be patient and continue to offer these healthy foods in, um, mealtime contexts that are warm and supportive, it will pay off in the long run. And it may be quicker for some kids than for others, but we know, you know, with, with any domain of parenting, consistency and patience really often leads us to the, the best outcomes. So that's, that's the main, main thing I would advise to parents. I love that because I think that's exactly right on, you know, it's so easy when you're a parent to just be so focused on the now and to get that feeling that the way things are now are the way that they're always going to be, that he's a picky eater and he'll always be a picky eater. But I think the research would suggest that you can count on this pretty well is to really just remember to try to take the long play in terms of just stick with your guns and remember just this repeated exposure. And like you said, making the the family meal times a positive experience and not worrying as much about the quantity or the variety that was eaten today um yeah. really do, you just have to have the faith that it's going to play out and be a positive in the long run yeah and so many things with parenting right i think once you've had kids for a while you realize there are so many things that just resolve themselves on their own timeline just one day, you know, your kid starts doing what you've hoped they've been doing, they would do for months. Um, and so, yeah, really just to speak to like, you, you can only control what you can control. Uh, and otherwise you just have to trust that in the long run, it'll be okay. Yes. Well, that, that does bring us to our next question. So from Molly, she says, as a child feeding expert, what has been your greatest struggle feeding your own children? That's a great question. Um, so, well, I will say that I was surprised at how much of feeding was still visceral for me, that, that, that I still would have emotional responses to, you know, that, like I, I kind of said in my response to the last question, that I, I'd put all this effort into this beautiful meal for my kids. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, yes, they're going to love this. And I made it so, you know, cute. And, um, and I just was like, this meal is going to be a winner. And then they try one bite and they're done, right? Or they just hold <laughs> down their milk and they're like, I'm full. Um, and so I was, I was surprised, you know, despite having all this knowledge around child feeding and the right thing to do that I still had that gut reaction of like, well, tell them to eat three more bites or, you know, like you got to eat this meal. I worked hard on it. Um, and so it's, it's still been, you know, a challenge, I think for me to take a deep breath and, and instill my own patience and knowing that, you know, it's, this is not something that you need to push your kids to eat. You don't have to be emotional about it. You can still put pride and love into what you make, but you, you shouldn't take it personally if they don't eat those meals. Um, because that's just, they're just not hungry that day or they're yeah. just not into it. It's okay. So, um, so yeah, so I'd say, you know, that's still, still a challenge for me, um, in a surprising one, but one that I've definitely learned to, to work through <laughs> to, to make sure that these more logical practices come through and we can still have these positive mealtime contexts. I, I love that you shared that because I think it just really reinforces the idea that even with all the knowledge, it, it's still hard. So the day to day, because just like we talk about something innate in our cave babies, I've, I've said <laughs> this before, but I think there's something innate in you as a parent. So even yeah. though you can know the research and know all the information and kind of understand the best practice for child feeding, there's something inside of you that feels like I must make this child eat. <laughs> and so just realizing again, just as some things are normal within your child to to realize that, okay, that's some, you know, that's part of my cave brain back when, you know, yeah. we were hunting and gathering our food and it wasn't going to maybe be available for the next few days. That may have been right. true, but today that's, that's not the reality for most of us. And so just right. recognizing it, giving yourself that grace and then mm-hmm. realizing 
to just, again, take the long play. But I agree. It's the same way because I'm sometimes shocked by. And and I think the other thing is that I'm not perfect. Like I've definitely, I can know all these things and I'll still have times where I'm like begging my child to eat breakfast. Like I'm like, just yeah. eat something before you go to school. And in my head, I'm like, this isn't really probably the best thing to be doing. But, you know, you're just, you're there. So realizing not every day is going to be perfect and just to... um do your best while you can. <laughs> yep, definitely. And, you know, I think with, with parenting too, uh, there's, it's, it's good to make mistakes and, uh, and let your kid know you made a mistake, right. And, yes. and remedy it. I think sometimes we feel like we have to be perfect in everything we do. And we worry about these times when we're tired and we snap at our kids mm. or we push them to eat. Cause we just need to get out the door. And, um, and I, I think I've kind of thankfully come to a realization of like, it's really important for them to see me do something. Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to do things like that, but if I do, it's okay. And it's important for me to then say, I'm sorry, I'm really stressed today. And I shouldn't have said that to you. Um, and I, I will do better next time. Right. Cause then they yes. see that like, nobody's perfect, but if you do make a mistake, you own up to it and you apologize and you do better next time. And so it's all okay. I love it. Thank you so much, Allison. This was very informative. I thought it was a great chat and I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, I was so happy to speak with you. This was a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for another episode of Feeding the Family. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and we will see you next week. 